Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Uh, welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. Uh, thanks to the Ruminations crew for another great show highlighting issues around homelessness and rooming houses. Hi, I'm Bill and I'm with Jasmine here, my new co-presenter. Uh, and each week on the Living Free Show, we highlight one of the 12-step recovery programs that assist recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery experience and show us that shared experience saves lives. Uh, today, my guests are Louise and Violet. They're members of Food Addicts in Recovery Anonymous, and they'll be sharing their story of recovery from food addiction. So welcome to the 3CR studio this afternoon. Thank you. Welcome. Hi, Bill. Thanks. Um, so usually we start talking about, you know, growing up and what life was like and what it's like, you know, what, what happens and what it's like now. So starting off from when you're young, uh, talking about your family and growing up. Um, so, Louise, what are the sorts of things that influenced you as a child um, in your journey to where you ended up? Yeah, thanks, Bill. Um, I think my biggest influence was that I had um, allergies to food. Um, I grew up in a rural kind of setting and we had lots of fruit trees and um, we grew our own food, Um, but I seemed to have allergies. Um, And so my mother would send me to doctors to try and work out what was wrong and I would have lots of different remedies for, for fixing it. And it would manifest with headaches and sinusitis, lots of sneezing. Um, Yeah, it was an uncomfortable kind of time. So did you start off controlling what you're eating? Yes. So uh, doctors would give me lists of foods that I couldn't eat, and so I would substitute things, like I was lactose intolerant, so I started drinking soy milk instead of cow's milk, and I was told I couldn't have orange juice, so I would drink apple juice, and then I couldn't have white bread, so I would have brown bread, and it started that way. So was there something that sort of would trigger you with your food allergies, anything particular? I think um, there were two symptoms. One was sneezing, lots of sneezing, and... um, and the second one was the migraines and the headaches. So there would be a degree of control and healthy eating when I was, you know, in in the family, like at dinner times, lunch times at school. But we would go to parties, and I would um, eat the junk food. I would um, there would be times when I was unsupervised, and I would have access to all sorts of, you know, party foods, and I would find that I would eat a lot of that stuff and I would get these migraine headaches and they were really debilitating and I think that's one of the reasons why you know my mother would and I suppose I would become sad upset irritable um yeah it was um it was painful (laughs) I would vomit yeah yeah okay um so did you do anything else that to try and alleviate this the stress you were feeling I guess as a young kid in primary school, um, I didn't really. But when I got into high school, um, there was probably a bit more liberty. And um, I probably started, um, I don't know if, you know, I started drinking alcohol 
Um, and I'm not sure if that was to alleviate the problem or just because, um, yeah, I wanted to fit in and I didn't want to, I kind of didn't want to adhere to these lists of things that I could not couldn't eat. So I probably rebelled. Um, so were you open yeah. about open about things, or were you secretive? I I did become quite secretive, and I can't really work out why that happened. Um, yeah, so um, maybe it was a little bit of isolation. We lived a fair way away from people, and there was probably a few times when I got teased by my older brother and maybe by kids at school. Um, and so I felt like a bit of an outsider. And so I started to kind of carry a bit of a, a chip on my shoulder or a bit of an I'm too cool for school attitude. And, um, yeah, there was, you know, I would I would sign my mother's signature to get out of sports um, and I would sign my mother's signature to get out of school early to go into town. Um, so there was a bit of devious behavior that started to happen and I would you know I would go and stay at a girlfriend's place and we would go to a nightclub instead of going to an underage nightclub so there was some devious kind of some deceitful secretive behavior that started to happen yeah so what what sort of things happen when you're out out alone yeah well I guess um I perhaps looked a little bit older than some of my friends and so I started to buy alcohol underage um and got away with that you know I seemed to kind of get away with things and I had I made friends with a girl who had a fairly free house home life and there was lots of junk food there and so I was really in the food without knowing that I had a problem with it um there was lots of sugar flour products you know chips and chocolate and lots of sweets and um yeah so I would already be quite high on that on that kind of food, and then we'd go out to you know a um, blue light disco is what they called them. Yeah, <laughs> the parents would leave us there, and then we'd jump on a bus and we'd go into a um, you know an adults nightclub, and then we'd leave that nightclub early enough to get picked up by our parents. <laughs> um, yeah, and they would never really have known that we'd we'd you know I think we probably had underage ID and that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, so, Okay, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's probably enough. <laughs> okay, uh, well, I'll swap, swap over to you, um, Violet. So what was life like for you growing up? I grew up in the suburbs. Um, my parents were migrants, so migrant family, um, very large extended family of one of two girls, um, one sister a lot older and one a lot younger. So at times I felt a bit like an only child. I was quite shy and reserved but at other times there were a lot of people around you know so I could feel like alone in the, around a lot of people um, large family gatherings on weekends and birthday celebrations and all that um, and a lot of food <laughs> so my mum um, and my aunts you know they they would they would um, yeah cook up big storm and so food was always available and yeah they nurtured us through through the food. Right. So what was it like at school for you? I love learning and I and I felt I got my self-esteem from, you know, being very diligent as a student and um, putting my hand up to do things and, and studying hard and I loved reading. But socially I felt 
that I was different from other kids. I wanted to be cool, um, which I wasn't. And, um, yeah, I wanted to be have certain friends. And, and everyone, you know, if people liked me. They were nice to me, but I wasn't included in a lot of things. So I just felt very excluded and different. Um, yeah, but I wasn't, I don't, I wasn't bullied as such. Um, I was rarely teased because I had a little bit of weight on. Um, but whether that's because I, you know, I was the instigator of something, that, <laughs> that's how someone retaliated, I can't remember. Yeah. So what was your relationship with food at that young age? I just I just found a lot of pleasure in food and the taste of the food and found a lot of comfort in the food. It was like, you know, I, as I said, I had my sisters and I had my cousins that were very similar in age to me for company um, mostly. Um, but if you could get me back to the table to take an extra helping, that's what I would do. And there was sort of no limits, really. Um, I think mum kept a bit of an eye on me at the dinner table when it was like family time during the week but if it was a bigger gathering then we, I could access whatever I wanted and including you know a lot of baked goods as well and sweets and things like homemade sweets and things like that. Were you a big eater? I, I was a big eater I was I ate a lot of quantity of food um, but when I was younger and active I played a lot of team sports I didn't excel in sports where I would be solo um, but I played a lot of team sport and I was active. That's in primary school. So it didn't show, it showed up a little bit in primary school. Um, yeah, I had an aunt who used to grab my cheeks and comment on me developing quite early and having you know, breasts at a quite a young age. Um, and I think that was a bit of puppy fat. But I was quite right-sized in early high school. It wasn't until I was probably in my mid-teens that I became, you know, I didn't like the fact that I had that a few kilos of extra on. Yeah. Um, so did you compare yourself to other people? I did. I, you know, I had um, a close relative that was we were similar in age and she was a lot taller and skinnier than me and I just wanted to be like that. And um, that led me to go on my first diet when I was um, about year nine, you know, to, to restrict my food to try and lose, lose weight, to restrict the quantities of food I was having. Yeah. So did your mum support that? She did. Um, she would just change, you know, the cooking habits. She'd eat. She'd cook um, foods that probably had uh, meals that had less carbs. Like I would have um, protein and salad and veggies, but I was still piling my plate quite high. But I cut out bread and and sweets because for me it was more about the save, more about the savoury than the sweet. Okay. Early on, anyway. Yeah. Okay. Well, so we might swap back to you, Louise. Um, so when did food start being a problem to you? It's, it's a funny question because I didn't ever think it was a problem. I was in a lot of denial. When I, I came into FA three years ago and even then I had moments of thinking I'm not as bad as other people. Um, but when I think about it, I remember you know, leaving my job in my 20s because I had boils, because I'd been eating so much sugar. Um, the toxins were just coming out of my body and I couldn't sit down, I couldn't drive a car. Um, and, you know, having to go to a doctor for that reason, that was food-related. Um, I'd just left home and I didn't know how to shop for myself or cook for myself. And, um, and then another occasion in my 30s where I'd, I was living on my own again and um, 
got so sick my mum had to take me to the doctor and the doctor said, yep, you've got anemia, you know, you're not, are you eating red meat? Obviously, no, because I was going through my vegetarian phase. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so what about relationships and um, and work? How did that affect your life? Um, at work, I was usually a grazer. I would eat while I was at my laptop. While I was at the computer, I'd be, I'd be eating while I was working. Um, and then I would kind of eat all the way home and I would – um, exercise around it to kind of balance that out. Um, with relationships, I tended to find boyfriends who were very good cooks. They would, uh, so they took on that role of kind of, you know, feeding me. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, which was kind of something I didn't realize until later on. I remember one boyfriend who was a you know, he was an athlete and he had said, um, it's all about calories in versus calories out. And I thought, well, that's a genius concept, (laughs) (laughs) but I didn't get it. And I remember reflecting on how can he be so, um, fit and so lean and he eats less than me. Um, and he also said, you know, why don't you just, you could eat as much leafy green vegetables as you want you know he was making comments about what I was eating um and I probably wasn't more than 63 kilograms but you know I was I was self-conscious about um you know the fat that was hanging that was on my stomach you know people would say to me are you pregnant um when I was in my 30s and I wasn't I was bloated I just had a distended stomach. Um, yeah, and that was a very uncomfortable thing to hear people say. Yeah, okay. Well, listen, we might take a quick break. Accented women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accented women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the... How can people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are two, where there are armies there and terrorists there and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent Women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR. Uh, you're listening to The Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. We have over 110 episodes of the show available as podcasts on our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash livingfree, so you can check them out. If you want to send us a message, then you can contact us via 3CR on 9419 8377, or email us on 3 free at gmail.com, and we're also on Twitter as 3CRLivingFree. I'm talking with Louise and Violet about recovering from food addiction with the help of food addicts in Recovery Anonymous. Um, so Violet, back to you. So you said you started going on diets in year nine. So how did the rest of your teens pan out? Um, if I jump ahead, I remember in year 12, um, my school tunic wearing a skirt, um, got really tired on me. So I gained weight by then. Um, I was studying ferociously for um, the final exams and 
yeah, that was really um, to get through those, you know, many hours of study. I would have a lot of snacks and um, a lot of caffeinated drinks. Um, so my uniform got tied on me. Um, so what I would do really in those late those late high school years was just restrict my food for a while, cut back, lose a few kilos, feel more comfortable. And as soon as I would get to a weight that I was comfortable, I would just start eating the way I wanted to eat again. Um, and then as I um, got into university and I had a little bit more money as I was working part-time, I tried um, substitute meals, like com- more commercial type of uh, approach to commercial products to losing weight so I'd substitute up to two meals a day and you know I'd be hungry but I'd actually be high on the sense that you know this is going really well because I'm hungry and I must be losing weight and I would drop you know five kilos or so again um, and then go back to to eating the food I love the stodgy meals at university um, you know the two dollar sausage and mash with gravy (laughs) Tough meals um, and campus. We didn't have. We had one coffee shop that opened. I, I remember I, that would be my first stop before to go to any lecture to get um, sugar flour product. You know, before and, and a coffee before I could even think of going into a lecture. So I'd often turn up late to my lectures. Um, yeah, so it's just it was just a cycle of dieting, losing a bit of weight, and then gaining the weight again, and then dieting. And I know for me it was like, oh, this is easy. I can just drop you know, a few kilos. But it became progressively harder as I as I got older. Yeah. So did it cause any health problems? It did because late high school I started getting you know um, digestive sort of discomfort and pain. I had an ultrasound and it found that I had uh, polyps in my gallbladder, so I was developing gallbladder issues. Um, and then I was still at uni, probably my early twenties. I started getting these gallbladder attacks where. You know, if I ate a very heavy meal, and often that would involve takeaway, um, fried, battered food. I loved battered, greasy food. Um, I would be really unwell, like early morning the next day. So I would, you know, I would wake up with a lot of pain, abdominal pain, and it would not, you couldn't do anything to alleviate it. Just had to ride that storm. Um, so I was eating and harming myself, and I would sort of think do I risk eating that? And I'd go, yeah, of course. And I'd just go ahead and buy that thing, consume it. Um, A lot of takeaway food. And by 23, it got to the stage where it was advised. I had my gallbladder removed. And it was major surgery then. It was before keyhole. You know, so I've got the, I've got the, the, the the war wound, so to speak, to, to, you know, proof of what I did to my body. Yeah. Okay. Oh, listen, we might swap back to Louise. Um, So Louise, um, I think we left you in your, early 30s um and i think by that stage were you married by then was it Am no I? no okay no, right. I was definitely so, not married okay then. i might have been engaged several times but didn't really get to that stage <laughs> okay so um what what was the biggest problem in your life in your early 30s then yeah, the 30s was pretty chaotic. Um, I was finding it really hard to stick with anything. Um, yeah, I'd be in and out of relationships and um, I was uh, I would, did work for my family company for some time, um, but I had left that company. I'd worked in Darwin for a while and um, I was really struggling with... Um, with alcohol, with depression, I was really struggling with depression. Um, and I'd gone on Prozac 
but I or Zoloft, I think it was, and I couldn't stay on it because I got high and I thought I'm fine and I went off it and yeah, I was um, my moods were all over the place in my thirties. Um, I was very emotional. I was seeing lots of counsellors. I was seeing iridologists and hypnotherapists, and I was studying to be a yoga teacher. And um, I was just really looking for solutions. Mm. Right. So, did you find that exercise helped you? I did. I um, it was interesting because. Yeah, um, I'd been picked up drink driving and I'd lost my license and so I had to ride my bike. <laughs> um, and I had a, this boyfriend who was an athlete and he was a bike rider. And um, so I started I started swimming and, and running and drinking energy drinks and I started competing in um, short distance triathlons. And I found that um, I'd broken up with that boyfriend and I was single again. So I was I had completely isolated. I was working for my father and I would cry at work um, and I would see counsellors and then I would ride my bike and I would do yoga. And, I, you know, six days a week I was, um, I was training, you know, morning and night and... Um, yeah, it was a very it was an interesting time. I enjoyed competing. Um, there was a focus there, but I was um, a troubled a troubled young woman. Okay. Mm. So, how were your relationships? Did you is it difficult having a relationship when you have a uh, problems with food and, and alcohol? Yeah, I think I was attracting the wrong people, um, and I wasn't really available for a relationship. I was. You know, expecting things, you know, from from friends and from relationships that I just, um, you know, I wasn't. Uh, I, my moods were all over the place, and that must have been very difficult to to be around. Um, yeah. So, and the mixture of, you know, I was still drinking at that stage. Um, so, and I was having, you know, I, it was not such a good reaction to the alcohol. Um, and it wasn't, yeah, so that was hard. That was a hard time. Um, I got into AA um, when I was 32. And so I put down the alcohol and that seemed to be quite easy. I'd moved into state and so I'd let go of all of those friends and I wasn't surrounded by those memories. And so I just threw myself into into the 12-step program and people pretty early on could see that I also had a problem with food. And they told me at that point to go to Overeaters Anonymous and I'd put on weight when I lost. So my normal weight's about 55 kilograms and summer, winter, winter I'd probably put on five kilograms, summer I'd lose five kilograms. That was my normal thing. And then in AA I might have put on 10 kilograms and people said, don't worry about it. Everyone puts on a bit of weight when they stop drinking, you know, you, that'll sort out. But with me it didn't sort out and they said, maybe you need to go to Overeaters Anonymous. And I thought, yes, that's my problem, I'm overeating. Yeah, because I couldn't decide whether I wanted chocolate, vanilla or strawberry, so I'd buy all three, yeah. thinking I won't eat them all, but then I would. <laughs> um, yeah. So so what um, what caused you to think that you needed to do something else, some more things? Yeah. 
Well, I, I thought I had it. You know, they said you just need to stop controlling the food when I was in OA. Um, I had a counsellor who said that, you know, you, you're just trying to control it. What if you surrender to God? And I had a moment where I surrendered. I worked out chocolate was the problem. Um, and I didn't eat chocolate for four years, but um, I went on a date with someone. I got rejected and I went out and tried to buy every chocolate bar that had come onto the market in the last four years. <laughs> um, so, yeah, they, they say that the disease is doing push-ups in the background, and that was my experience, that, you know, I'd had a period of controlling it um, or of grace from it and when I relapsed um, it kicked in twice as hard yep. um, so yeah it progressed okay um, well I'll swap back to you Violet um, so what about relationships I, was, you, I think we ended up with you having your gallbladder removed so how were relationships with you I found a lot of it centred around all my relationships were about getting together to, to share meals <laughs> and connect through the food. Um, I met my husband at university. We were doing the same course. Um, and so we were going out together from the age of 1920. And, yeah, he, he loved his, his food, as a lot of young men do. And, and, yeah, that was, I mean, I could eat more than him. Um, so we had been very compatible in that way. So um, for me, it was, yeah, it was about, just sharing time around a, t- a table of food. Um, the only block I had, if you call it that, was that uh, I was still I lived at home till I was 23, and my mother was still providing most of the meals, um, so I wasn't cooked for myself. And she, you know, as she saw me go through periods of dieting, where I got her on board to help me with that and prepare certain food, when I'd go back to eating, you know larger quantities and putting on a bit of weight like she would pull me up on that you know you sure you should be eating that or you've had enough haven't you had enough already and yeah that that irritated me um so there was you know and I would sort of um I probably wasn't very nice in my response to her (laughs) about that um thinking back um but yeah she was she was aware that something wasn't quite right with me and the food um she was just trying to be gentle about it but I didn't want to hear about it Right. Uh, so when did when did the food issue become a real problem for you? Yeah, well, post having the gallbladder out, I resumed eating the way I wanted to eat and then I was pregnant at about 26 and I just consumed great quantities of food. Um, in that pregnancy, I gained about 25 kilos. And the weight gain, I think in the early 90s, it wasn't, you know, when you uh, were pregnant, the doctor wouldn't pull you up so much about the weight. Um, but I gained a lot of weight and my blood pressure went up and it, you know, it caused a problem with the pregnancy. So I delivered a normal healthy baby, a four kilo baby. And, you know, luckily it was a, it's a normal delivery, but it could have been much more complicated than that. Um, and so I re- recovered from that with weight on, um, but I was, you know, I found motherhood very stressful. Um, I was a fairly young mother with not much experience of having little ones around and I struggled really to cope and um, I was visiting my GP and he diagnosed depression and just gave me some uh, some ways of dealing with that um, at that time not going on any medication and I and I sort of struggled I struggled to 
to find a balance and to, to cope. Um, I was always tired um, and I turned more to the food in that situation. Always tired, running ragged, not feeling I could do, uh, I was a good enough mother, not want, wanting to put more time into work. Um, there was never enough time. Um, so I started to wanting to find ways to feel better about myself. You know, I did a lot of things. I did meditation and I was going off doing different things at night. My husband would come home, look after the baby, and I'd go out on search for happiness and positivity. So that was, that was going on for me concurrently to trying to keep my weight down. Okay. Uh, well, so I might swap back to Louise. Um, so, Louise, um, I think you did get married. Um, yeah. Eventually. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Um, so what was it like, you know, when you said you were in and out of relationships? So what was it like being married sort of in a long-term relationship? I got married when I was 41 and I'd been living on my own for 10 years, you know, prior to that. So it was a big, a big shift, a big change. And I was really, I wanted to have children and it had taken me a while to work out how to get to be the right person, to be in the right relationship and to find somebody who is happy to go ahead and be in that situation. So I found my husband. Um, we started to, we, um, so we went through a process about two years, two, three years of um, IVF. You know, we knew that I was on that old end of the scale for a mother, first time mother. Um, and so we got some, medical help you know straight away and that was a hard process so there were lots of injections it was expensive there was you know a lot of failed attempts and I put on the weight and thought that that was okay um so yeah and then I guess my last ditched attempt was with uh, an acupuncturist and he actually put me on a um, kidney cleansing diet and I lost 15 kilograms in about three months and it cost you know three thousand dollars or something like that and it was pretty intense um and i i said okay i've lost this weight what about the fertility and he said okay you know you have achieved the weight loss um we'll we'll now change the herbs that you're on and you can eat whatever you want and those words you can eat whatever you want just um, like with a floodgate opening for me. All the control that I'd ever had all my life suddenly went out of the window and um, I just couldn't stop eating. And I asked him, you know, how helped me. Um, I had an AA sponsor and I said to her, you know, help me. How do you do, how do you eat moderately? Yeah, that's when I heard someone in an AA meeting say, Food Addicts in Recovery Anonymous. Okay. And, yeah. The journey started. The journey started. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, so I'll drop back to Violet. Um, so, Violet, you've, um, you've been through some difficult times with your children. So, in your mid-30s, how, how was life progressing and when did, it, when did your eating become a real problem? Okay. So, um, I kept up with all my regular, my medical checks. Um, but my weight was piling on um, I was probably in my early mid-30s size 16 go, creeping up to an 18 I got diagnosed with high blood pressure so I went on medication for that um, so I see a cardiologist um, um, cholesterol lowering medication 
Um, my insulin level started to go up and so I was diagnosed as pre-diabetic and I went on Diabex and that was that had some unpleasant side effects. Um, and I just, I was just so ashamed that I needed to go on this medication. Um, and someone said to me, oh, it must be, diabetes must be in your family. And I said, no, there's no one that's diabetic. But I, I knew that it had to do with my weight. I knew that if my weight had been less, I wouldn't have had these health issues. I was the only one overweight and morbidly obese in my family, um, which I was by my mid-30s. Um, also, I just still was not coping well with two young children um, and I was really depressed and I was put on um, antidepressants and I tried to wean myself off those thinking that I would be okay and really I, I, that was not a good idea because <laughs> I had a couple of episodes where I just really um, clocked out. You know, I, I, a few weeks I, was just, I just couldn't really surface. Um, I spent a lot of that time in bed thinking that I wasn't, you know, life was just too hard. And then I pushed myself forward. So um, it was just like, this is all too hard. And I just felt so, I was so frumpy. I just, you know, I was carrying so much weight. I was just continuously exhausted. And I used the food really as a reward and to prop me up. The food was what, you know, kept me going and gave me the energy. Okay. Well, listen, we might take another break. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done By Law, 6pm Tuesdays. Uh, you're listening to Living Free on 3CR on digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. Uh, I'm talking with Louise and Violet about recovery from food addiction with the help of Food Addicts in Recovery Anonymous. Um, so, Louise, um, we were talking about um, the fact that you heard about food addicts in an AA meeting. Um, so mm. how did you actually get to food addicts? So, um, yeah, I heard about it in the meeting and I asked the girl who was talking about it. I asked a few questions. I got a phone number. I found out when a meeting was and probably two weeks had passed. Um, and I was, I was out at a restaurant on my own, um, a restaurant I didn't really want to go to. I was going to meet my husband later. And I was looking at the menu thinking, I can't eat any of this, but I ordered something and I thought, I'm not going to eat the whole thing. And I ate the whole thing and I thought, I'm going to eat another, I'm going to order another dish. That was horrible. Um, No, I won't order another dish. And I walked out the restaurant and then I went to another takeaway outlet and I started looking at the board there and thinking, oh my God, do I have to eat that food? And I looked over my left shoulder and I saw a girl who I knew had been in FA for 10 years and she was thin. And I'd seen her fat and I'd expected, I was thinking, when's she going to get fat again? And she never did. <laughs> and she was eating a meal. And I went over to her and I said, help, I am in the middle of a binge and I can't stop eating. And she said, oh, that's great because there's a meeting that starts across the road in half an hour. <laughs> and I thought, oh, no, that's that meeting that they told me about. <laughs> and so I really had no way out. Um, 
so I went to that meeting and yeah, there was, I don't know if it's the grace of God or it, it wasn't really willingness on my part, but once I got there, I knew enough about 12-step program to knew to know that I would have to get a sponsor, I'd have to go to meetings and I'd have to kind of surrender. And I kind of realized I've, I'm, I've, I've done it. I've just crossed a thin red line. You know, I'm, I can't, there's no going back. This is the only, this is the last port of call. It's come to this. <laughs> so what did that entail then? You're going to a meeting. So what was it like listening to other people talking about eating? I don't know how much I remembered from that meeting. I was probably just thinking, oh, my God, this is, this is where I am. This is what I have to do now. This is what it's come to. Um, I've got a real problem with food and this is my solution. I know that this stuff works and, um, you know, that's the end of my eating whatever you, you can, whatever you want. That's the end. You know, this is the beginning of something new. Um, so what did you have to give up? Well, I guess what they asked was that I, um, they, they suggested that I was powerless over flour, and sugar and uncontrolled, unmeasured quantities. And so I I got myself a sponsor that night and uh, I called her at a time that she designated for the next morning and she started to guide me through the FA program, which includes a food plan um, and everyone's food plan is tailored to their needs. Um, and... Um, yeah, so I basically it was letting go of flour and sugar and I had to buy myself a set of scales to weigh my body and um, a set of scales to weigh my food. And I'd never weighed food before. That was something that my mother did and I thought that was what the people from the 60s or the 50s did. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I wasn't going to do that. But I did, you know, I did whatever was suggested because I knew that I had to, you know, that my the way that I'd been doing things hadn't worked and I had to be willing to try something different and so yeah I started weighing and measuring my food and started committing my food you know telling somebody this is what I'm going to eat today and they gave me some guidelines around you know this is these are the quantities that you need to eat and these are the times of day that you need to eat and um yeah so I've stuck to that for the last three years and it's um it's working for me. Okay, so how did that change your relationships, particularly with your husband? Yeah, oh, it's so amazing because when I was in the food, I was really angry and I'd get irritable, we'd have arguments and I'd actually go to stay in hotels for sometimes up to three nights because we'd be arguing so much and I was just so unhappy and unsettled. And, you know, he'd sleep on the sofa or I'd sleep on the sofa. It was just... Really, there was not much harmony. And, um, yeah, when I got into FA, that settled down. You know, I had somebody that I was talking to on a, on a daily basis to start with. And I was able to, um, you know, start getting up in the morning and, you know, reading some some really inspirational kind of readings and, yeah, just getting getting my life in order 
um, I developed a, a routine around my morning breakfast and, you know, my lunch was ordered and my dinner was ordered. So the arguments, I started to learn new ways of how to um, how to communicate with my husband, which included this idea of, you know, do I want to be right or do I want to be happy? Um, I don't think that's a, a phrase that's exclusive to 12-step program, but um, it's definitely helped me. So I learned how to pause when agitated, you know, how to stop. I used to always want to have the last word in an argument and we'd chase each other around the house trying to have the last word. <laughs> it was <laughs> really silly. Yeah. So what about the relationship with your parents? Yeah, that's improved as well. They're interstate, so I don't see them that often. But um, people suggested with for me to keep it short and sweet, like to have regular contact, but not to react. You know, if I felt upset with something that my parents said or they didn't say, to um, just not necessarily react right then and there and to say, you know, pleasantly, it's been lovely talking with you. I love you, mum and dad. Um, let's talk again another time. Um, yeah. And wise, so, wise words, and yeah. Those relationships improved, yeah. yeah. Okay. Thank you. Uh, so swap over to you, Violet. So you're on antidepressants. Things were difficult. How did FA help you and how did you feel talking to other people about your problem with food? Um, well, I got to the stage where I tried so many different things short of having um, bariatric surgery. One, to try and get my weight down and two, to feel better. Yeah, I realised that there was something going on with me and food that wasn't, wasn't you know, a healthy relationship. So I, I did an internet search and, it, and I think I was looking for OA but then I thought, you know, I knew of OA, I knew of AA, and I thought, oh, this is much more than overeating. You know, someone that's putting on, you know, wanting to lose 30 kilos at a time, it's, it's um, yeah, there's, there's something certainly off-key about that. So, um, but then FA came up, and I went to a meeting for FA, and I really, I, I really identified with what I heard, and I, and I knew that um, being in those rooms was where I needed to be. But I, you know... Um, they say that, you know, addiction is, um, you know, that we have fear, doubt, insecurity as addicts. And I was so afraid of doing this, this, this thing that was so different from what I'd done before, that this solution was so different. But really it was the only solution left for me. And because even if I'd had bariatric surgery, I, I, eventually I, I would find a way to get food in my, into me in liquid form. So um, I heard what I heard. But then I didn't commit to it, and I went off, and I, you know, I tried dieting again, which didn't work. Um, so yeah, a year or two down the track, I came back into the rooms, and um, from there on in, I mean, I, you know, started, you know, the journey. Um, firstly, to lose weight. <laughs> you know, they say you you, you um, go for the, va- the vanity, coming for the vanity and stay for the sanity. But, you know, it was all about, I really, that life changed. My whole life opened up and um, I started to get balance and perspective and let go of a lot of anger um, and fear. Uh, a lot of the fear that was there started to dissipate. Oh, I could work through the fear. I had, I had tools and ways of dealing with life on life's terms and... Um, yeah, that was the beginning of the journey. Mm. So how important is it to have a sponsor in FA? 
Oh, it's such a gift to, to have a sponsor. I mean, someone who will give you 15 minutes of their time every day from early on and um, guide you. And I think it's about, really, it is about that surrender and, and having that trust in someone and not, not looking always inward to yourself to, for the solution. Because I hadn't really worked out, you know, the solution myself. So it, it was firstly trusting someone who had, more experience than me and um, finding someone that had what I want. Um, for me, that was finding someone that was in a right-sized body that seemed to be at peace in the world um, and take on their suggestions. Okay. Um, so what does it require on a daily basis to be an FA? There's certain things we do in the day, like wake up in the morning, um, I ask my high power for an abstinent day, um, free from sugar, flour and quantities and um, do, do a reading and from one of the literature, uh, pieces of literature that we have um, and take half an hour of quiet time, which is really meditation. I sit still. Um, then I talk to my sponsor. Um, then I have my weighed and measured breakfast um, and then I get on with my day. And, and then, you know, I have three weighed and measured meals which are spaced, you know, at certain times so I don't get too hungry between my meals. We try and connect with other people in, in program um, to talk about what's going on for us, perhaps around eating and the food, but just, you know, talking about every day-to-day things that are coming up for us. So, we, so that gets us out of our isolation because I spend a lot of time in my head thinking and trying to work things out and having a conversation with myself. So it's really important to connect with other people and other food addicts that get me. Yep. Okay. So what about your relationships? Has it improved with your husband? Yeah, it's it's much better now. Um I I mean I've been married for over thirty years and I work with my husband and um so we're together a lot and with different personalities and I find that I can show up a lot more for my commitment to work. Because if I had a down day where I didn't feel good, I just wouldn't turn up to work and he'd have to, you know, cover for me. So yeah, I stick to my commitment. My children were teenagers when I came into program. And now they're young adults still living at home and that can be challenging. We're all under one roof and I think I'm much more um, inclined not to control as much, to, to communicate in a way where I'm open to listen and things are a lot calmer <laughs> generally. And I've moved out of the way. <laughs> I can take this forward. Okay, so what has it meant for your socialising? Does it? How does it impact your life? Well, we did a lot of um, eating out with other couples. Um, that was a big part of our lives. So in the beginning, I cut back a lot on that and found other ways to connect with people. Whether they they came over here and I would cook a a meal, you know, that I could have as well. So share a meal that way. Um, or find other ways to, to connect and you know, go for a walk with a girlfriend rather than having, you know, sitting down or meeting at a cafe to have a coffee and a sweet. Yeah, go to the movies and go bowling. So just try to do things in different ways. And I found that in my friendships, I was a, uh, I was a great listener, but I don't think I offered a lot as a, of myself. You know, I was really hiding and not revealing a lot about myself. So I'm learning how to show up a friend and bring something into that relationship yeah and learning sort of to to be comfortable with who I am and learning more about myself and what I like about myself and um 
yeah, getting my confidence up that way. So to to know to think that or to know that I do have something to offer in a friendship. So yeah, my friendships have changed as well. I think they've become. I would spread myself and try and connect with a lot of people and be out there and and not miss you know social gatherings. And now I find that I think so. I just keep it simple. There's only so many things I can fit in on a weekend. Um, I try not to overextend myself. But the relationships, I think, are much better quality and have much more value now. Yeah, I'm sure. Okay. Uh, Louise, I was just going to ask you uh, one last question. So what would you recommend to people who are thinking that food was a problem to them? How would you sort of, um, I guess, approach that subject? Mm, I guess if anyone's thinking... You know, like, oh, what am I doing with food? You know, what if, what I'm I want more from life? You know, how come I'm not happy um, with my body or with with my whole life? Um, I'd recommend people go on to this foodaddict.org, and there are 20 questions that we answer to kind of find out: Am I a food addict? What is food addiction? If you feel like you're answering yes to some or all of those questions or if you feel like you're answering no defiantly to all of them <laughs> um, you know perhaps there's something in this and um, there's a list of meetings that you can get to Sydney has about seven or eight meetings a week um, from um, Pemaway to Darlinghurst to Maroubra um, Glebe Leichhardt there's a few there's a few different meetings around. Um, there's meetings in Melbourne. Um, I think there's about seven meetings in Melbourne a week, um, and there's also phone numbers. So if people are not close to a meeting, it's possible to um, contact the World Service in America and find a sponsor. So you can get connected wherever you are. It doesn't matter how far away you are. There are people in Nairobi who are you know who are in in FA um, because thank God we've got phones and WhatsApp and we can connect wherever we are. So um, there's lots of literature on that uh, website and you can listen to stories um, of people talking about their experience. It's nice to hear the voices and um, yeah. So there's a section there where you can listen to audio. Okay. Thanks. That's what I recommend. Okay. Mm. So if anybody's out there and they want to contact Food Addicts and Recovery Anonymous, uh, in Australia you can phone them on 1-800-717-446 or you can go online at foodaddicts.org. Well, that's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Louise and Violet for sharing their Food Addicts and Recovery Anonymous experience with us. Thank you both. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Bill. Yeah. I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll be talking about living with the family disease of alcoholism and we'll be joined by Alan on Family Groups. Thanks for listening to the Living Free program today.